Hey, I'm Josh with Our Revolution Colorado Springs, and today we are here with Trish Sornio, who's yes. running for federal senate here in Colorado. So thank you, Trish, for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. Really great to be here. So um, just a quick, so what would you say your main platform is, like the, the yeah. your top three? That is such a fantastic question. And I think, you know, we really need to start with how I got into this race because how I got into this race underlies all of the ways in which I wanna actually build and advance upon the issues that we all care about and we share uh, as Democrats in terms of things like healthcare and making sure that we all have access to that and making sure that we address climate change and that we all have good access to education, for example. But the reason I actually got into this race is because as it turns out, there are zero scientists on the United States Senate Science Committee. Now, as a scientist myself, this is something that I started noticing was really holding us back from making full and robust policy. And in fact, actually, this is true not only on the science committees, but also on the healthcare and the education committees and so on. And so my background is in science through healthcare and education. And I really wanted to make sure that if we were going to address everything from artificial intelligence, so it's, it's not only the main topics that we talk about, closing the wealth gaps and things like that, but how do we look at things like, well, how do we legislate for, for artificial intelligence and genetic privacy? And how do we do things like cybersecurity? And how do we make sure that we're bringing the right experts to the table to have these discussions? And so I got started in this race to fill and, and diversify a professional background that I really felt was missing. And that's how we got started in this. And if you look at the healthcare committee, for example, you see it again. Did you know that right now your only healthcare expert is Rand Paul? I did not know that. Yeah. Now he doesn't count for anyone wondering. He, he's, he's certainly not uh, the person that you want on your healthcare committee making those decisions. And what we see is that when you have committees like this and they just take money from lobbyists or they take money you know, from um, people who have a vested interest in a particular topic, then what happens is the people they pull in as experts to testify to these committees end up not being in your and my best interest. Right, and so we yeah. see this with healthcare a lot. Uh, and one of the things that I was finding when I was in DC for work and sitting in on the Senate Science Committee hearings and healthcare and education committees, we found that they pull in experts who the CEO of Anthem, and they'll tell you, well, we can't afford to cover all these people. It doesn't work like that, right? Well, of course. And of course, we know better, right? So we need people who are going to act for you and I and bring that professional background that's currently missing in the United States Senate. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that's... Uh that's so important. We have. Um, yeah. I I appreciate that your your focus on is on bringing science into into our government because we have so many legislators where they just don't have the experience or the background. Yeah. And they're just there either because they are paid to be there or other nonsense reasons. Yeah. Um, so would you say your focus for the science is more more climate or more? Um, or more healthcare. Yeah, so cli climate, and I think a lot of people at home and, and maybe watching this, I think a lot of us are really starting to understand now that climate change, or in some cases, I would actually call it the climate crisis, because I believe this is the defining scientific challenge of our generation. And I think a lot of people, a lot of Americans are starting to recognize that as well. And this isn't actually new information in the scientific community. We've known this for decades now. Um, but I think we're starting to see the momentum thanks to many different candidates that are bringing this up. And we're really starting to understand that this has to be a step Focus, a stepwise focus that, that day one is brought into play. So climate is absolutely one of ours. And if you go to our website, zornio2020.com, I encourage you all to come out. Uh, we have a 12-page plan 
on climate, it's a climate report and plan that's actually more comprehensive and even more aggressive than the Green New Deal. And it's evidence-backed. We worked with national and international environmental security experts to make sure that we are moving forward in the best way possible. Because this is this is my future, this is your future, it's all of your futures. <laughs> uh, you know, we're really, this is something we have to take seriously. And we're really excited to put a scientist on that science committee to make sure that we have evidence-driven policy for climate. All right, we're back. And we were just talking about climate change. Yes. And it's so important that we deal with the climate crisis, as you said, which we needed to do something about it yesterday or a decade ago when the scientists started yeah. telling us that it was a big deal. Yeah. Um, now, with the climate crisis, we're already seeing a lot of devastation to our country. And mm -hmm. there's going to be, well, there's already issues with, um, with the sea levels rising and displacing people in Florida mm -hmm. um, and other places. So what would be your plan to, or what should we do to help with, with those people in the meantime? Yeah, well, so for starters, we take this issue incredibly seriously, right? Which is what we don't see happening in Washington right now. We don't see people who are taking this issue of climate seriously. And so by adding my voice to that U.S. Senate, one of the main things that we're gonna do is first of all start by advocating for what we call the Office of Climate Mobilization. And this is actually leveraging a World War II structuring. Uh, it's one of the most rapid ways to mobilize our nation and uh, it was something that's already been utilized once before and so we know what it looks like and how to do it. And we would love to create uh, that Office of Climate Mobilization to kickstart a massive public and private uh, partnership to be able to start the development of all the clean energy technologies, all the uh, research funding and things that we need to do to completely transform our energy grid. And so that's the first thing that we do. And the second thing that we do is actually call for a series of top legislative priorities. The first one would be enacting a uh, really strong series of carbon pricing, holding those top industries that are actively polluting and making this issue holding them accountable and making sure that we're bringing in those funds to help pay for this transition uh, to clean energies. And then the next thing that we do is we also do a complete restructuring top to bottom and make sure that we end every single fossil fuel subsidy in our government and specifically targeting uh, that Department of Energy. And so a lot of people don't know this, but if you look at the Department of Energy's emblem, you actually even have oil and gas uh, picture on this emblem of the Department of Energy. And so we want to completely rework the mission to actually be about driving toward clean energy and taking the nearly $600 million that are sitting there for uh, a fossil fuel uh, operation and, and work there and actually shift it over immediately to clean energy productions. And then we would work with the Office of Climate Mobilization and folks to drive this program home and make this as fast as possible. And I want to talk for just a second, if it's okay, oh, sure. uh, about some of the science behind this and why this is so critical. Because right now, so the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has put out a number of reports that summate the science and, and really have put into uh, clear vision how urgent it is that we are acting on this. And to put that in context, uh, in the climate report that we have, we've actually leveraged a lot of their work and we've been able to show that here in America, uh, we're gonna have to have a really aggressive timeline. And because the reason for that is because uh, the global reductions needed by roughly 2028, 2030 are about 55% of global greenhouse emissions within a decade. 
Now, that's a lot. That's yeah. that's huge. That's actually um, one of the largest undertakings we've probably ever tried to do. Because you're right, we didn't act on the science to begin with. And so what we figured out is that because we can't count on everyone reaching that 55% globally, and because of the resources that America has here and the innovation that we have and our outsized output of greenhouse gases compared to the rest of the world, we actually probably need to achieve about a 75 to an 80% reduction by 2028. That is huge. And so we are calling for a massive mobilization that's, that's literally even more aggressive and comprehensive and evidence-driven than the Green New Deal. And that is a wonderful place to start, but we actually have to go a little bit above and beyond because the science is really clear that that's simply uh, not enough. And I know that's not what we hear very often. We usually hear the opposite, that that's too much. Um, yeah. But in fact, actually, we're probably gonna have to push as hard as possible to make this happen and make sure that we both mitigate and adapt to the changes that we'll see in climate change. Oh yeah, and I totally agree. And you know, it's it's going to be tough so long as the, the sponsorship by the fossil fuel industry is there. Yep. And we um, see that even in our own race. So I've signed the no fossil fuel money pledge, uh, and that's wonderful. But not every candidate in this race has. Uh, and in fact, those that are the one that is backed, the former governor that is backed by uh, the D.C. Dems, specifically has not. And we used to work in that industry and, in fact, actually has actively supported and taken money in deregulation. And it's, it's you know, this is a problem. So we see this even on our own team. And we need to make sure that we are electing someone that is going to uphold the values uh, that are important to you and I. Mm -hmm. um, so, you said we want to get to 80% reduction by 2025 or um, 2028? No, so we, yeah, so we're kind of looking at this for America, so we, I uh, absolutely believe that America needs to play an outsized leadership role in addressing uh, this problem, and so what we're looking at is about a 75 to 80% reduction by about 2028, uh, okay. and that would be the first step. Because uh, scientifically, in fact, the, the last 20% is much harder to reach in terms of transitioning to clean energies than uh, maybe that first 70, 80%, although it's still a challenge both ways. Yeah. Um, but there's a really simple way that, and we had, a, again, a chance to talk with so many experts about this, and there's a really simple, quick way that we can work to do this. And the first thing that you do is you clean up your electricity source, and then in cleaning that up, you electrify everything. And that's a way to help shift that immediate goal. Because again, when we talk about climate change, the main thing that we're looking to do is ultimately achieve not a net neutral, not a net zero, but because of the amount of carbon dioxide already in and other greenhouse gases already in our atmosphere, we actually need to achieve a net negative by roughly about 2045 or 2050. And so again, you know, when we take this into context, we need to then consider how we can actually go above and beyond some of the goals that we're actively talking about because it simply won't be enough. And so we are actually expanding upon this discussion and, and this is why it's so critical to bring in scientists because this is what we do. Yeah. Yeah. I don't hear anyone talking about having a net negative. So it's, it's in the scientific literature. I almost never see it out and about in public spaces. And this is the kind of conversation that we're having actively in the environmental security communities. Uh, but this is, again, this is why we need this voice, right? Yeah. Because, you know, it's not enough to just say net neutral or it's not enough to say net zero. Right now, one of the, one of the things that makes climate change so difficult uh, to address is that, and why we have to address it so rapidly, there's a scientific reason for this. Because when we emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, when that happens, 
the length of time that carbon dioxide actually stays in the atmosphere and then the compounding effects of warming that happen as a subsequent result mean that we can't afford to wait a year or two or three because the more that we end up putting in the atmosphere, the more impacts we'll see. So we need to dial up that time frame as much as possible because there's already too much and, and the effects, we've already committed ourselves to some level of change. And so in fact, the environmental security communities talk about two strategies. They talk about mitigation and trying to reduce those greenhouse gases that we're actively emitting. And then the second thing that they talk about is adaptation. And this is a little bit scary because it means that we've committed ourselves to some level of change. Uh, and there's not really a way to reverse that. And so what we're going to have to do is talk about how to secure our food and water sources. We're gonna have to talk about securing our infrastructure. Uh, we're gonna have to talk about how we secure our energy grids moving forward. And that's that adaptation component, not just how do we not emit this stuff, but how do we actually adapt and make sure uh, that we are doing that as quickly as possible to reduce the amount of change that we commit ourselves to. And, and you're right, this isn't anywhere except in the scientific space. This is why we're running. This is why, <laughs> this is why we really need to bring more of that scientific background. Well, we definitely appreciate having more people who are really active in climate change running. Yeah. And just being an active voice, because that's something we really need more of. Yeah. And you know, some of that's always bothered me. These, even my Republican friends and the Republicans in office, they all have children, right? And don't they want yeah. them to grow up on a healthy planet? Yeah, um, you know, I think one of the things that makes me a little bit of a unique candidate is that um, I actually grew up in a very conservative rural area. And in fact, my whole family, to the best of my knowledge, that whole town really supported Trump by and large. And, you know, I was able to sort of travel and, and, and learn a lot of different information. And the first time, I remember the first time, in fact, that I was introduced to the science of climate change, and it was in college. And I had been taught in high school that it didn't exist. And, oh, and more so that we were actually heading toward an ice age. And so, you know, this has really been a, a personal uh, thing for me because I understand where if you grow up in these communities and you have wrong information, how difficult it is when you then get confronted with this thing that doesn't match what you'd been told as a kid, you know? Yeah. All your authority structures telling you these things and, you know, my science teacher uh, doing that. And so, you know, for me, it's been a personal journey. And, and because of that, uh, I really opened the doors for conversations. You know, look, we know the, sci the science of climate change. We know that this is the number one threat that the U.S. military has recognized it since 2007. Uh, but, but when somebody doesn't necessarily understand you know, I, I try to understand how and why. And actually, I had a chance to do that down at the, um, the state legislature here in, in Colorado. I was uh, helping with some of the, the behind-the-scenes organizations for the Select Committee on Climate Change a couple years ago. And one of the things that I was able to do was talk with one of the Republicans who sat on, uh, on that committee who openly denied climate change. But he came from a part of Colorado that was extremely rural, and I felt like I wanted to talk with him and try to understand. And, and you know, I kind of joked with him about it, and I said, you know, when I went to meet him, I said, well, you know, Rep. Rep. Bullitt, <laughs> I said, I, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm helping to organize this, I clearly identify with uh, and I acknowledge the science here. But, but I did want to say, uh, you know, I understand what it's like to come from where you are and feel uh, you know, that, that you're being targeted. So he said, because he had said on one of the committees, he said, look, this person from Aspen was telling me that because I drive a truck, I'm part of the problem. And his retort was, you have a 54 square foot home in Aspen that doesn't run on clean energy. 
And so, yeah, my truck, because I live in the middle of nowhere, is, is a problem. But this is so partisan because who are you to talk to me when you have a 5,400-square-foot home that's not eco-friendly either? And so he felt under attack. And so we had this conversation. I said, you know, I think you're right. We can both do things on both sides, urban and rural, in both sides of the aisle to actually improve and address this issue. And he just looked at me and he said, oh, gosh, well, he was stunned. And he just said, you know, you and I could probably find some middle ground. And, and so I try to stay open because I, I just had, you know, a, a similar experience of, of not knowing the science and not knowing where it came from. And uh, it's, it's a hard transition to make that happen. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's definitely really tough to grow up in one environment where you hear one thing. Yeah. And then you learn something different, then you change your mind. So yeah. that's... Uh, that's tough. <laughs> and that's a growth mindset, which is a phenomenal thing, right? So growth mindset uh, in, in the scientific world, this is, this is what we do. The scientific process is about learning and growing based on vast amounts of information and incorporating that information back into uh, the scientific theory that we're developing. And so growth mindset is huge. And I think in the political spaces, one of the things we don't see is a growth mindset. We see fixed positions. And in fact, if you learn and change your mind, you're considered to be flip-flopping, right? And so um, I would really encourage people to know that it's okay if you don't know the science of it, uh, but feel free to ask us questions because this is something that I'm really passionate about and I've had a chance to learn a lot about. That's really cool. Yeah. And I'm just going to push that. One of the things that we hope for and that I personally hope for is I want people to realize that not everything is just one mindset and it's, yeah. it is really tough to change one's mind, it especially is. having grown up in a certain environment. And... I also hope more people realize that we agree more than we realize. Um, it's just there's, there's so much money pumped into our system and there's so much propaganda out there. And so it's how do we get beyond that? And it's, we need yeah. to have conversations like this where we can talk it out. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you look, especially in the Republican Party, but it does happen on both sides, but, but more so in that Republican Party, there right now we have a, a president and a U.S. senator here in Colorado, Cory Gardner, who is actively supporting that president and, and, and the things that he's doing. Uh, they are actively running billions of dollars of disinformation campaigns, right, and targeting voters. In fact, there's a wonderful art, argument, uh, an article out in The Atlantic that talks about how the disinformation campaigns that are happening through the Trump organizational structure and how they are micro-targeting, leveraging science and technology to actually exploit these weaknesses in the system. And in fact, this is one of the things that when you talk about why do you need somebody with a science and a technological background, we're in the 21st century. You know, when we think about war and, and, and um, all the issues that we confront, you know, we started, you know, we used to fight war on land and then we went to sea and then we went to air. War now is going to be information. Right? It's going to be information and data, and it's going to be network controls and grid security. And so these sorts of things, and when you have a president who is actively leveraging the fact that we have not legislated proactively on this issue, right? and so the fact that there, we don't hold companies like Facebook accountable for actually needing to manage disinformation, we don't, they, we don't, we don't do that. And so they're exploiting it and, and using micro-targeting uh, to, to foster division and, and misinformation and all the things that we're seeing. So this is, yeah, this is something that's a really big issue today. Well, and when you get as big as Facebook, it it gets tough to hold yeah. them accountable because then they start to have as much power as our government. Yeah. Which I think is a whole separate conversation. 
That's, that's uh, probably about either updating and or mostly just enforcing uh, the current antitrust laws and, and working in a way where we don't allow these mega conglomerates to get to a point at which they're elbowing out any potential competition and, and keeping, uh, you know, heck, we have companies right now that are not only not paying taxes, they're getting rebates. Yeah, they are getting a rebate. I don't know about you, but I just did my taxes. I'm not getting a rebate. And in fact, I actually owe some money because for some reason, uh, a few hundred dollars, because for some reason, uh, the way in which the, the withholdings were taken out was not perfectly accurate. And, and I actually owe money. But these companies that are raking in billions of dollars every year in profit are not only not paying taxes, they are using that money to actually work around and get rebates from people like you and me. And you know the really annoying thing about that, well, the crazy thing is, you hear all these arguments from the right of about free trade. And the thing is, if these companies are really that great, like, <laughs> why do they need us to supplement them even more? Yeah. Like, why do we need to sponsor them and, and basically donate more money to them? Yeah. And, and I believe we should be focused on people, not corporations. I don't believe that corporations uh, represent people. I don't believe they should have a voice like you and I get a voice, right? And, and I think this is part of what we have to see. And, and if you look at campaign finance reform in particular, this is something we're going to have to do because of that. So yeah, yeah something that we, we greatly support and we're living our own principles in our campaign mm -hmm. to do that. So, so um, let's shift a little bit to talk a little more about Medicare. Yeah. Um, so what's your stance on Medicare for all or just yeah. healthcare in general? And a lot of people have different versions of what yeah. are different definitions of Medicare for all. There are a lot of different definitions and I think it can be a little confusing actually as to, to you know, what these things mean. And um, incidentally, one of the reasons I got into this race and I think you know, I mentioned earlier, Rand Paul is currently the only person uh, with healthcare experience on the healthcare committee in the US Senate. And as someone who has worked through my science, uh, in part in hospitals and clinics with patients, working to either identify a disease, working with teams to improve a treatment or understand the molecular underpinnings, it's always that next advancement of medicine and technology. Uh, I have worked with patients for a long time and I've watched, you know, I, I worked a lot in pediatrics and so I've watched young kids get denied treatments multiple times, right? I have a volunteer on my team right now that his 14-year-old son was diagnosed with cancer. And the first thing that they told him is that even with a full insurance plan, they were gonna have to pay probably about 50 to $60,000 out of pocket. And you know what they ended up having to do? A GoFundMe. GoFundMe, in fact, has over a third of their accounts now for healthcare insurance. They are now one of the large healthcare insurance, a GoFundMe page. That is not the intent, right? And so I greatly, because of the experience that I've had in healthcare uh, in working with patients, I greatly support a universal healthcare system. We will absolutely move toward a single payer system. And more than that, it has to be a comprehensive system. And when I say comprehensive, I don't only mean things like vision and dental and the, the kind of really obvious things that we think about, but I mean comprehensive in the sense where we actively put patients' needs first and we work on preventative measures that are holistic in nature, right? And we see a person as an individual and not just a number coming through. And so, so we wanna actually focus on expanding not only the patient, but to the care support teams. So I'll give you a really personal example that came up. So last year, um, my mother and her uh, partner were actually on a motorcycle and they were hit by a car. A woman ran a stop sign and they were hit on this uh, motorcycle. 
Now, uh, it wasn't clear if she was going to make it, and so I got a phone call from, uh, from the hospital saying to come in, and I did, and she ended up, uh, she did live, but she ended up having a leg amputation and a bunch of broken bones and some, some, a lot of stuff going on. And when we were dealing with that in that first you know, 24, 48, uh, 72 hours, one of the things that uh, came up was how are we going to handle the insurance component? How are we going to handle the out-of-pocket expenses? Because now you're talking about not just somebody who's um, going to have to have medical care actively, but a life change retrofitting the entire house, right? Like getting a ramp so that you can get inside to a home, being able to retrofit a bathroom, being able to have care support so that when I come or my family comes to support the patient in the hospital, do they have some place to stay overnight so that we're not charging people endless amounts of money to be able to be a support and a care structure, right? These are the sorts of things that when we talk about a comprehensive system, my definition, again, goes so far beyond what I think because of that healthcare experience and background and seeing the support systems that need to come at large. You know, my mother in a trauma two level, level trauma two center, they didn't even offer a mental health professional. Oh geez. They were literally removing a limb and all they had was pastoral care. Level two trauma center. This happens all too frequently in our, in our society. We have, we spend more than any other nation on healthcare. We have some of the best doctors and the best technologies and we don't even benefit from them unless you're able to pay for it. And you have to have a nonprofit system. You just, you have to. So, so much to respond to there. I'm sorry, <laughs> I, you're, hitting, you're hitting climate change and, and healthcare, these are such passions for me because I've worked in these things for so long. And it's, it's just, yeah, but. <laughs> no, no, so I, I really appreciate the passion. And you know, my dad has diabetes and hepatitis, so. Yeah. And my uncle died of cancer. And I also have a slip disc, so like healthcare, oh it's it's super personal to me. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we we really need so much activism on on healthcare. Yeah. It's actually my number one issue. I and I think what we hear from most Americans that if it's not your number one, it's your number two. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, we hear this a lot. So. Your story about the the amputation is like, yeah. if it's not enough of a horrific experience then you also have that additional stress of worrying about how, how to fund it. Yeah. And that's just totally insane. Yeah. Like, your life is already being turned over. Why yeah. do we have this insanely barbaric system mm -hmm. of, of the funding? I had and that experience actually um, in my 20s. I was a passenger in a car accident. And uh, do you know Rabbit Ears Pass in, in Colorado? It's uh, coming out of Steamboat, anyway, uh, on the way to Kremlin. Yeah. But the, the woman who was driving, uh, it was a whiteout, and she lost uh, lost control of the vehicle. And there was a guardrail, uh, but she just barely missed it. And we actually went over over the edge. And I don't oh, actually remember a lot of this because I got knocked out. I had a pretty significant head and neck injury at that point. Um, I do remember some volunteer firefighters or somebody kind of semi-hauling me out of the car and, and various things. But I remember this. I remember getting strapped in an ambulance and thinking, because I had just come out of graduate school and I had just started a new job, and I remember thinking, I'm never gonna be able to afford this. And I was literally strapped into the ambulance thinking to myself, I don't know what I'm gonna do. That was the first thought that I had in a major head and neck drama is, how am I gonna pay for this? This is gonna bankrupt me, and we see that. So many Americans are bankrupted because of healthcare. And, and I've, I, 
came on that precipice myself. And I, I fortunately was able to, through friends and, and family, kind of figure out a way to make that happen because I'm not independently wealthy. But um, it's a personal issue for, I think, most of our viewers here today, too. Well, I'm really glad you got through that. that Thank you. <laughs> that stinks. I'm sorry you had to yeah, go through it. Yeah, I missed most of my mid-late 20s, actually. I had a couple years of recovering. And in fact, you oh, know, the geez. first job, oh. it's really hard when you come back uh, out of these. The first job that I was able to get was actually at the Center for People with Disabilities because it turned out that they understood a lot of the things that I needed in terms of accommodations at the time. And, and you know, I'm very thankful that I don't need those now. It's been, gosh, eight, nine years or something like that. But mm -hmm. and I've been able to fully recover. But... Uh, at the time, I, I was still struggling pretty immensely. And so, you know, I'm really grateful to the, the support community that came out. I have a lot of amazing friends and, and people who had gotten to know me through my work that, that really helped. And, you know, everything from just checking in on me during the day to, like, helping take care of my cat while I was in the hospital to uh, taking me to the grocery store. I couldn't drive for a while and, you know, those sorts of things. And, and you know, actually, um, I gave a talk about this uh, years ago because it was the first time I ever ended up on uh, social assistance programs. They saved me from having to file for bankruptcy. And it was a, a really humbling experience to have to go through those food stamps and through a public subsidized healthcare system. And that is the only thing that kept me uh, from having to probably file for bankruptcy at that time. Um, so I'm gonna add one more comment about healthcare yeah, real quick. Of course. Because um, you mentioned the GoFundMe. Yeah. And this is another thing that I would argue with uh, for people who are against some kind of national health care system mm -hmm. is, again, if our system is so great and so wonderful here, why do we need additional subsidies from regular people to help fund our system? Like the GoFundMe thing is just seems totally insane to me. Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've worked in healthcare for a while, and I think one of the biggest shifts that I've seen in the last 15 years or so um, has really come from the fact that from a top-down process, who we are bringing in in the healthcare model is really shifting the priorities. And so a lot of the people who now come in to run these healthcare organizations, a, a major hospital, a major insurance company, whatever it might be, they are no longer doctors who worked up through the ranks and are focused on patient care outcomes. They are people who have a business background, who are driven to get a bottom line, this, the, the best profit you can make. And I've seen an exponential increase in, in our drive to have better profits instead of better patient outcomes. And I know that because I've sat and been required to sit in as a hospital employee, uh, who, you know, because through the research that I do, I, I do work with these patients. And I've been, sit in, I've been uh, required to sit in on things like customer service trainings that specifically have said things like, well, the best way to make a repeat customer in our service model. Right oh, now, now, this isn't a primary care office or something where you actually do need a repeat <laughs> kind of visit. This was yeah. actually in an emergency room and an emergency hospital and a community hospital that does surgeries and all sorts of things, right? And the fact that they were training care providers and people like myself who work with those patients to create a repeat customer tells you everything you need to know. And I shot up my hand and I said, I, look, if you, if you think our goal is to create repeat customers in an emergency department, you have no business stepping foot in healthcare. And I would advise you to please respect the patients, right? And I, you know, I did that at the time. But uh, this is the biggest thing that we've seen in the shift of, of healthcare. And I, I hear that echoed across a lot of folks who work in that system. And you know, that's exactly the point, that our system is all about selling to customers. And it's maximizing profit yeah. and just squeezing every last dollar yeah. as much as you possibly can. Yeah. And uh, 
yeah, I don't support that system. <laughs> and I don't either. Uh, and, and, you know, this is a big chunk of why I'm running for this U.S. Senate seat. Uh, mm. It's not only the science background, it's the background and experience that I have in healthcare and in education, right? Because I also teach at the university and I've taught for many years now. And these are the sorts of things that we just don't see that expertise in the United States Senate. And, and we have to fundamentally change who we elect and the type of professional diversity that we have. Uh, and it's, it's become a passion and it's part of who I am now in part because of the experiences that I've had. Look, you know, politics are personal at the end of the day. I think sometimes we forget this. We can get into high level politics, right? And we'll, you know, get into this idea of like, well, Trump did this and Trump did, and that's all true. And that's bad. We have a corrupt, corrupt president right now. And we have a Senator, Cory Gardner, who's actively supporting him. But politics are personal. It's literally the difference of, can you put food on the table? Can you afford, did you get a raise at your job that is consistent with inflation such that you can afford to rent or buy a home, right? Can you afford healthcare? These are really simple questions. Are you going to be discriminated against because of your gender, your skin color, because you're part of an LGBTQ community? Are you going to be discriminated against in policy? Politics are personal, and we have to return to that at the end of the day. And we definitely need people to get involved. Absolutely. Um, we need you, all of you. In fact, please come to caucus on March 7th for us. We are going a caucus-only route, and we need your support. So please, please, please help us, help us change the makeup of that U.S. Senate. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, where can people go to learn more about you? Yeah. Well, and thank you so much for having me. These are such passionate issues for me. You can visit Zornio2020.com. You can just also Google Trish Zornio or Trish and Scientists in Colorado. It comes right up. So uh, feel free to check that out. And again, caucus for us on March 7th. We need you and we need your support to make the ballot so that we can have true change. Yeah. Well, great. Thank, thank you. So you. Much.